If I asked you to guess the percentage of murder cases that actually had physical evidence that tied a suspect to the crime, what would you say? I'll bet you didn't say just 13.5%. But that's exactly what research done by the Boston Globe in 2010 showed. So what does solve crimes? Good, solid investigations. Hello and welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Now, if you're interested in where true crime and faith intersect like I am, this is the podcast for you. I believe that we all have a calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So let's dive into our case today, and we'll see how each one of us can do just one simple act that can make a significant difference in the true crime world. This is Season 3, Episode 13. The book I picked for this week is The Blooding by Joseph Wambach, one of my all-time favorite true crime books. And what I want to focus on is this tension we have between what we see in the news about officers doing terrible things, botching things, actually doing things on purpose to hurt people, and what the majority of officers are really doing giving their all to solve crimes. My guest today is Ken Bader, founder of the Police Officers Credit Union Association. He's also a business consultant, and he happens to cover true crime podcasting for Podcast Magazine, which is how I met him. He has really great insights for us today. So let's quickly review today's case and then get on to our talk with Ken. The author of The Blooding, Joseph Wambaugh, used to be a police officer in L.A., before he became a writer. He's done fiction, which are good, I've read some, but I really like his nonfiction best. And The Blooding covers one of the very first cases to use DNA evidence, what they call the genetic fingerprint. It's not like today where you can just do the little swab inside somebody's cheek, you can run it through all these databases. None of that existed back when the cases that The Blooding covers were unfolding. It was late November in 1983 in the villages of Narborough, Littlethorpe, and Enderby in the English Midlands, which altogether had less than 12,000 people living in the three villages. It seemed to everyone there like it was such a wonderful and safe place to raise their kids. And really, isn't that what all of us who are parents are looking for? A safe place for our kids to grow and become adults. Linda Mann's mother and stepfather still kept very close tabs on their teenage daughter. But when the usually extremely punctual girl was several hours late getting home one night, they reported her missing. Tragically, her body was found the next day. She had taken a path, a shortcut through some woods, and that's where they found her nude, sexually assaulted body. When she died, DNA wasn't detectable in body fluids. Yet. So police went to every home in these three villages, checking the alibis of every male between certain ages. And they even checked as many men as they could that had lived in that area for the last five years that might still visit, might still have family or friends in the area. They checked hundreds and hundreds of tips. And some of them even volunteered to work on Christmas and other holidays, whether they were scheduled or not. They checked out known sex offenders, including flashers, even though some psychologists will tell you that they are harmless. But sometimes flashing is just the beginning. And when that's no longer exciting enough, 
their behavior escalates. The suspects that the police developed had their blood tested, but at that time they could only do it for type and secretor status. That is, did their blood type, quote, leak into their other fluids, making it detectable in something other than blood? It took so many hundreds of man hours, and it still got them no closer to an arrest. Eventually, the number of officers dwindled down as people were needed to put on newer cases. But in the meantime, a geneticist at a nearby university stumbled across a process that we've come to know as that genetic fingerprinting. But it wouldn't come in time to stop Linda's killer from striking again. Teenager Dawn Ashworth, like Linda Mann, was a bubbly young girl, excited to become more and more independent as she got older. She knew what had happened to Linda, and so her parents felt that that made her extra cautious. But a shortcut down a wooded path in the middle of the day must have seemed safe to her. And it would have been if a man named Colin Pitchfork hadn't come along at exactly the wrong time. I hope everybody who has listened to the podcast and become a part of our Unlovely Truth Tribe here will take just a minute to go and give a review out on Apple Podcasts, because that's one of the best ways for podcasts to get out in front of new people and have others discover what you're discovering, that they need tips and encouragement and community so they can become a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So if you'll take just a moment, leave a five-star rating and even a review, help us spread the word so that more people can be like you, making a difference in the true crime world. Colin would later tell police that he just intended to follow Dawn down the path a bit and flash her. But like with Linda, he just couldn't stop himself there. Dawn was reported missing and a huge search was undertaken, but it was two days before her body was found. Once again, hundreds of tips just poured into the police. And finally, they were able to arrest a young man who was known to abuse young girls. However, he knew what was going on and he demanded a blood test. It cleared him. But the new testing did show that whoever had killed Linda had also killed Dawn. So now they knew they were looking for one man. A new team of officers started checking out more possible suspects, while another went back to going door to door looking for useful information. In a pile of nearly 2,000 tips was the one that would make all the difference. Someone told police they ought to check out a man named Colin Pitchfork. He certainly did not want to hand over his blood. Somehow he was able to talk a coworker into posing as him. They took a picture of him, altered Colin's passport, sent the young man in to pass himself off as Colin Pitchfork and to give his blood. The first man he asked turned him down. He tried again and got turned down again, but then a third time, he got someone who agreed. While all of that was playing out, police were still working overtime, working with angry wives and girlfriends who dragged their men in to be tested. Officers even volunteered to do lawn maintenance at the cemeteries where Linda and Dawn were buried so that they could keep an eye on men that came to visit those graves to check out why they might want to do that. It had been nearly four years since Linda had been sexually assaulted and murdered, and they were still working that case. One police officer told a reporter, surely someone who knows something will say something. The young man who took Colin Pitchfork's blood test was sitting in a pub with friends one night when he blurted out what he'd done. 
Hearing that story so disturbed another coworker that she went to the police. And that was the beginning of the end for Colin. He was eventually arrested, convicted, and sentenced to two life terms in prison. But the judge who sentenced him did not set a specific mandatory minimum. And Colin was actually released last year in 2021. This type of offender is usually so compulsive about what he's doing, he just, I don't want to say can't stop, won't stop. A little over two months after he got out, Colin violated the terms of his release and went back to prison. Some of the police who worked Linda and Dawn's cases don't believe it would ever be safe for the public to have Colin released again. Those police did such an amazing job, and they've got tremendous insight into how to keep their communities safe. Now let's check in with our guest and ask Ken how tough it is to be a police officer today and what he thinks police would say to us on how we can best help them keep our communities safe. Ken, I'm so excited that you were able to join us today because you do such great work supporting um, our officers. And I absolutely love Joseph Wambaugh books. That's our book this week. He's a former LAPD officer and a very gifted writer with um, both true crime and um, fiction crime books. And this book in particular got tons and tons of attention because he was highlighting the first case in the entire world that was solved using DNA. But the angle I want to explore with you today is how that never would have happened without a huge amount of legwork from the police department. And I don't think we hear enough good cop stories. All the media wants to show us is the bad cop stories. So, you know, with over 150 officers spending like seven years working on this, collecting 4,000 blood samples, do people really understand what the police put into solving crimes? No. <laughs> Would you like me to elaborate? <laughs> Easy answer. Yes, please. <laughs> well, first of all, it's a privilege to be on your show. Thank you, Lori. I, I really appreciate the invite, and it's it's always insightful talking to you. Um, yeah, but to elaborate on my very deep no answer, um, no, I don't believe most civilians. I'm a I'm a civilian. Uh, I've never been a police officer, but I've worked with law enforcement and law enforcement businesses for about 20 years. And most people don't realize that, um, whether it's, as you alluded to, you know, back in the day, you know, getting 4,000 blood samples. Do you imagine the, the manpower, the overtime, the commitment to doing that? You know, even even on a smaller scale, you know, today, you know, granted, it's a little bit easier to get a DNA sample. You can get, you know, other bodily fluids, uh, but that usually means, you know, following a suspect around, um, staying later, you know, missing dinners with your family, you're literally digging through garbage, you know, to be able to get that one cup from McDonald's or Starbucks that you think the suspect drank out of. Um, so I, I don't think most civilians understand you know, not only the commitment and the deep work that it takes to bring somebody to justice, 
but but also the the dirty filthy side of it you know the the what people really need to do in law enforcement you know to be able to build a case you know whether it's with dna or or other evidence i agree a hundred percent and one other thing i loved about this book so many true crime books will talk about the perpetrator at length and i get it they're very interesting because they are hopefully much different from the rest of us but in this book they really got very detailed on one of the lead detectives derek pierce and I thought that Wombaugh did a really great job of showing that these officers are really just regular people like you and me, and yet they have these tremendous responsibilities and demands placed on them when a big case happens that gets a lot of media attention and really puts a community in a lot of fear. And so I wanted you to talk about, you know, when you're talking to officers how do they deal with with just everything that's asked of them? Well, you know, they deal in different ways, sometimes positively and sometimes very negatively. And I think that, you know, that's one thing I try to do, whether it's with public safety talk radio or some of the other projects that I'm working on, is bring to light the realization of what I call the aftermath. Um, and I'll swing back to, to your specific question in just a minute, but as you're speaking about this book, I keep thinking of uh, a book that uh, is titled Facing Evil, uh, which is a true story uh, about a Sacramento police officer who basically saw uh, his partner executed in front of him. And you know, in the book, you know, there is, even though it is nonfiction, you know, it does read like a Hollywood movie. You know, there's a chase. There's we got to go after this guy. There's there's gunplay and so forth. Um, and a lot of times, even in nonfiction stories, people watch it, listen to it, read it and say, wow, OK, that's great. Now we caught the bad guy and the story ends. Uh, but that isn't the case in real life. You know, in, in the case of Scott Brown, who you know is was one of the authors of Facing Evil, and is the individual who saw his partner basically get executed. There was a lot that happened after that. Yeah, you know, a lot of trauma with the trial, a lot of issues at home, a lot of issues with other police officers and friends, and psychological and emotional issues. Um, that he went through that he was brave enough to explain in the book. And I think that's what, uh, you know, civilians really need to understand. I think that, you know, there will be some people, unfortunately, that will all always be part of that defund the police group. But I also know that there is a lot of people in that gray area that may be somewhat apathetic that if they're educated on reality, you know, may come over to, you know, let's let's not necessarily defend the police, but let's find a way to build them up, support them, train them, educate them, make something better and enhance this. And, and back to your original question of, you know, how do police deal with it? You know, some of them um, do have great support structures. They, they lean on family, they lean on partners, um, they go to therapy, they, uh, they, they do, um, you know, physical activity, they meditate, you know, some of them do yoga, actually, there's a whole business, <laughs> uh, called yoga for first responders, you know, so some of them do, you know, understand, 
in a conscious level that there's that there's a trauma and there's a huge responsibility that goes with that and they need to take care of themselves to be their best selves. Um, unfortunately, there are a number that, that don't handle all of this the right way. There's alcohol, there's drug abuse, there's uh, sex abuse, there's uh, um, domestic violence, uh, there's, you know, there's suicide. Your suicide is, is unfortunately a big, big problem in the law enforcement community. Um, so it, it runs the gamut from trying to self-protect and eventually suicide to a number of of positive ways to deal with it that uh, many people you know may or may not know about Uh, and i'd like to kind of throw in a sports analogy here you know you see fans in the stands that are um yelling oh i love sports analogies awesome you you see the fans (laughs) and they're yelling oh my gosh why did you do that why did you mess that play up or whatever happened and i'm thinking you can out there and try that. It's not as easy as it looks. And I'll guarantee you, you're not going to do any better than the person that you're criticizing. And so I've, I've kind of always thought the same thing when we're criticizing officers. You know, you get out there and let people shoot at you and try to stab you and, you know, all the things that they go through and see how quickly you want to strip all their funding. <laughs> After you've, you know, maybe experienced that. So, you know, what about the ride along programs? Do you encourage people to do that so they can get a little taste of of what the police are experiencing? Well, certainly I, I encourage that. I think they get a little bit of taste. I don't think they necessarily get a whole taste. Um, you know, generally you know, on a ride along, they're, they're not necessarily going to take them into a gang fight. Um, you know, you're not going to necessarily see all that. Um, I hopefully do- not. <laughs> hopefully not. Um, but I do know that some police departments, um, are taking civilians through part of the training that police do. They some some police departments, usually the larger ones. Um, I think Las Vegas has that, and uh, a couple of other large police departments. Where Chicago, I believe, has this. Where it's it's kind of a virtual reality, where you know cadets are being put through situations where they have to react in a second or less. Um, and I know that some departments are putting civilians through that, you know, where, okay, somebody is in an alley and is belligerent and yelling, um, but doesn't have a weapon in their hand and you're trying to deescalate, but all of a sudden he goes quickly into his pocket. You know, what do you do? You know, everybody wants to say, it's like, oh, he's just going for a cell phone. Well, yeah, in that time, in that split second, you know, the officer is concerned about his own safety or her own safety, is concerned about the safety of people living in the homes around this individual. You know, there's a lot going on. And when somebody makes a quick move like that, when they're on drugs or mentally ill or hopped up on alcohol or whatever, you know, you're, not, you're not necessarily working with a logical person. So some departments are actually putting some of the civilians through that training um, so that that they can get a taste. Um, and I think that they're starting to be, you know, some realization. Um, I, I recently had an interview with Alan Baris, who um, is uh, part of a program called our company called Reflex Protect. And we talked about 
the non-lethal, non-violent types of reactions from law enforcement. And they're working on some of those. But we laughed and joked about the people that aren't stupid. They're just ignorant and, and naive. They said, well, why don't you just shoot the gun out of his hand? You know, why don't you just shoot him in the leg? Well, <laughs> yeah, this this isn't Hollywood. You know, it's it's not a Western. Um, I wish that was the case. And I think some of these experiences like this virtual reality, you realize that, you know, hey, you know what? In this half second that I have to react, you know, actually taking out the firearm, pointing it at the shin <laughs> and, and, and having that type of time to make that decision, you know, much less be able to have that kind of great aim <laughs> is, is not realistic. And I think another thing that people don't understand is the vast majority of policemen, they don't want to hurt anybody. I had a friend who was a sniper on the SWAT team in his local jurisdiction and there was a hostage situation and he had a bead on the guy and relayed that fact to his supervisor because the snipers don't just get to decide when to shoot their supervisor tells them and so he said I've, I've got the guy in my sight and by the time the supervisor could relay back to him that he could take the shot the subject moved and he didn't have him in the sight anymore and uh, he said, you know, I had to be prepared to kill somebody. He said, that I, I didn't want to do that, but at the same time, I didn't want this person to hurt the hostage. He said, so I was trained that if my supervisor said shoot, I was going to do it. I just, you know, he moved and I didn't, I didn't have to. So how many of us have had to make <laughs> those decisions? And, and like you said, who's going to actually be able to aim at a shin and hit it with any accuracy plus just because i wing you doesn't mean if you've got a weapon you can't still shoot at me that's why they're taught to shoot to kill yeah none of none of these officers at least none that i have met you know want to shoot anybody um are there exceptions yeah i'm sure there are uh but officers you know, don't want to necessarily get into an officer involved shooting um, and it goes back to your original question of what do civilians, you know, really understand? And even even if it goes completely well, you know, even if it is a righteous uh, shooting, yeah, it's it's clear. You know, even in society, it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, they don't understand all of the. You know, to use a very technical phrase, BS, that is involved with that type of situation in terms of the paperwork. and the th They don't want to go through that. Yeah, they, they would much rather, you know, to use my or, or other example in the virtual reality, is talk to the guy in the alley and, and have it end with, hey, you know what? I know a shelter. You know, why don't you just come with me? Let's get you a bed. Let's get you some food, you know, and let's get you calmed down. And have that person say, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's what they want. Yeah, they don't want <laughs> to have to engage this guy in a violent manner. You know, they don't want the paperwork. They don't want to be taken off the street because they've got to go through, you know, some type of psychological analysis. They don't want that. They they want to end this in a nonviolent way. And then they want to go home to their family, you know, and, and have a burrito or something. You know, that's what they want. <laughs> I love that. Um 
and that's what any of us want at the end of the day. Put in your day's work, get done, and go home to your family. I know you have had to have heard a lot of police officers talk about things that the public could do that would make their jobs easier. Not because they're wanting to slack off, but it would make it easier for them to solve the things they need to solve, to process the things they need to process. So what's the number one thing that people in the general public can do that would help keep their community safer, would help their local officers out? Yeah, the number one thing I've heard from, you know, many commanders, um, and I've been to, you know, in my own community, uh, different meetings, and I've obviously been involved with with other types of events throughout the country. The number one thing I hear is, for the love of God, if something doesn't seem right, if something doesn't look right, you know, pick up the phone. Yeah, and I know I even had one commander in a meeting, you know, somebody said, well, should we call, if if, we're, if it's not really a crime, but we're not sure, should we call the, the non-emergency number? And then somebody says, well, I tried that and I couldn't get through. And the commander says, you know what, call 911. You know, even if you think it's so small and I- irrelevant, it's like, you have my permission. You know, if they give you crap, you can say that commander so-and-so said, you know, <laughs> call 911. And their and, and they're, all of their points are, you know, is if it really is nothing. It's their job to ascertain, you know, the level of an issue that it is. You know, if it's just, you know, some, you know, cousin three times removed that's looking in the window because he just happens to be in town, yeah, then, then police, you know, they're, they're not going to be bothered by that. It's like, oh, okay, well, we checked it out. It's like, no problem. You know, we pre- we appreciate, you know, you taking some time with us, whatever. But when they get really, really frustrated is when they find out that there's been a crime and they canvass the neighborhood and a neighbor says, yeah, you know, I saw this and I, and I just didn't think it was right. Well, did you call anybody? Well, I didn't want to bother anybody. Well, now we've got a problem on our hands. Yeah, it's as one commander said, you know, in in a, a home robbery, you know, somebody came back from vacation and, you know, half their house was gone and ransacked and everything. And they talked to a neighbor. It's like, yeah, three days ago, I thought it was weird when somebody I didn't know was taking, you know, John's TV out the front door and into a van. Yeah, you, you don't think that that's something that you might want to <laughs> actually give a call on? <laughs> yeah, th- there's not enough money in the world to hire enough police officers to be able to be everywhere that they need to be at every second. And so we've got to step up to protect our own neighbors, our own loved ones, our own communities. You know, we can't just push that off on them. We've got to be a part of the solution too. Which doesn't mean running around, yelling citizens arrest and tackling people. You're right. Call 911. Just make them aware and then let them handle it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, being, you know, I, I, I've said this before. And, yeah, I, I believe that, that safety is uh, an illusion. Um, and I don't say that in a pessimistic way. I just say it that, you know, one second, you know, you feel safe and the next you don't. And that doesn't necessarily just relate to crime. It relates to life. I mean, you know, here in California, one second, everything's okay. You know, the next, all of a sudden there's an earthquake. 
Um, it, you know, that in that one second, you know, you don't have time to prepare for all that. Um, so I think that you know, safety is first and foremost your responsibility. Um, the police is, is a resource. They're, they're a resource and they're there to help. Um, but, you know, I'm not a gun nut, but I own a firearm. Um, you know, I have double locks where I think they need to be. Um, I have lights where I think they need to be, you know, because I understand that, you know, if my house is less desirable than others, um, then they're going to walk away from my house. Um, you know, I don't, I don't put myself in situations where, okay, you know, that seems a little bit weird. Like that guy talking to himself on the other side of the street, I'm just going to walk to the other side. Um, and not even have to deal with that. Yeah. You know, not have any false ego or, or, you know, braveness and so forth. So I, I think from a civilian standpoint, you know, you need to understand that safety is first and foremost, your responsibility. And then, you know, how could I use the police as a resource when I really need it? Well, and I'll kind of add the female perspective to that because, you know, obviously, you know, we're typically smaller, less muscle mass. We appear to be easier targets. And so there's so many things women can do. We like to be too nice. Well, I don't want to hurt that guy's feelings um, and make him think that I think he's up to something bad. Well, I don't care. Hurt his feelings. He'll get over it. He'll be fine. Um, I had, I was actually walking, uh, by myself just the other night, leaving a, a conference and walking to my car. And I realized there was a man walking behind me and he was probably fine, but I made sure that I stopped, turned, looked him in the eye, pulled my cell phone out of my purse and made a call. I'm on the phone with somebody. I'm connected to somebody. And, you know, he walked on by and probably had no no inclination to do anything to me, but I'm not going to wait until after he's already tried to then say, I probably should have done something. So, you know, be on your guard, have your little uh, thing that you carry in your hand that, that you can use as kind of self-protection. I can't remember what those things are called. They're pointy. But anyway, um, you know, if you think you're being followed in your car. Yeah, I'll give you an example in a minute, but yeah, to, to your point. Uh, my wife is not allowed to get gas ever here in Los Angeles County, period. Um, and you know, there might be some listeners that think that this is going to be a ignorant statement. Uh, but unfortunately, in Los Angeles, a lot of homeless, a lot of unscrupulous people you know, have a tendency to hang out at gas stations because they'll ask for food, they'll ask for change, they'll they'll ask for gas in their beater car. Um, and, you know, I feel it's not my job or my wife's job to ascertain if somebody really, really needs help, you know, or is pulling some type of scam or is dangerous. Um, and my wife, you know, God bless her. You know, she was in the, she was in the Peace Corps yeah, she is the nicest person that you'll ever meet. You know, in fact, I tell people I can understand if somebody doesn't like me. A lot of people don't like me. If you don't like her, then something's wrong with you. <laughs> uh, but she is that nice person. Unfortunately, she, you know, as my father taught me, be aware of your surroundings. 
you know, understand, you know, where everybody is at, spatial relations and so forth, because that's, in essence, the the first you know, uh, level of safety. But uh, but when I go, I, I get gas for both of our cars. When I go get gas, you know, I, I kind of casually scan, you know, a 360 of, you know, what's around me, who's around me. And uh, I always, almost always, uh, and some police officers um, do have these. It's uh, they're sold by uh, Spearpoint Technologies. It's just a simple spear on a handle, and I have this clip to my belt all the time. It also actually is a nice little tool when you need to, you know, rip open cellophane <laughs> or open a box or something. Uh, but I always have this. Uh, because you know, here in California, we don't believe in conceal and carry for law-abiding citizens. But I always have this on my belt, and I'm glad I've never had to use it. But you know, just literally, the last time I got gas, you know, a, a woman came up to me asking for gas, and you know, I just simply said, "I, I can't help you. I wish you luck." But I had, you know, I had my hand close to to that spear. Because if she was going to do something, if she was mentally ill or hopped up on drugs or get physical with me, you know, my first step would be to pull this out and say, you, you got a chance to just walk away here um, because I'm going to protect myself. And I think that when she yeah, go ahead and say she could have been a decoy. It's yeah. Yep, very, very possible. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate, you know, as as much as you know, I know, you know, you have a high level of faith. I probably don't have as much as as you, but I am trying. Uh, that's for sure uh, on a number of different levels. That I, I certainly, you know, want to believe that most people are good. Uh, some days I believe that, other days not so much. Um, and that person may very well have have needed help. Um, but yeah, that's not my job to ascertain that on a particular day. There are, there are certain programs and places that you can go for help. Um, and it's not at the gas station. Um, and, uh, you're, you're exactly right. There are a lot of bad people out there that don't seem bad, that seem good. And there could have been, you know, two gang members behind me for all I know. On that happy note, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to tell us <laughs> tell us more about um, the work that you're doing and maybe any upcoming project you have that you're excited about. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about what we're doing in the POCUA. Um, I founded the POCUA with uh, another gentleman from Chicago Patrolman's Federal Credit Union uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, it stands for Police Officers Credit Union Association. But what uh, I'm leading the charge this year to, to do is to, to make the POCUA, in essence, a, a chamber of commerce for businesses, both for-profit and non-for-profit, that serve first responders. Um, so that they can get together, whether whether it's a police credit union or a firefighter podcast or a business that provides uh, product to to first responders uh, or police or fire foundation to get all of these folks together to collaborate and get what they need so they can grow their their businesses. Um, so a chamber of commerce that actually does what it says it's supposed to, which is to couple people and network people 
people for the purpose of, of getting more business and not just take your money and, and give you crappy appetizers and then send you on your way. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. You guys, I have links in the show notes to the things that Ken is working on. I want you to go check them all out. And if you feel like it, definitely support them because you will never know the things that the officers in your community have done to keep you safe. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely love all the wisdom I get every time I talk to you. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Lori. It's it's always insightful to talk to you and always enjoyable. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'll bet that most of you listening today have heard of the ideal of biblical womanhood. You know who I mean, that Proverbs 31 woman. She takes care of her family. She earns a living. She's praised for her wisdom. But let's talk for a moment about a couple of verses from this chapter that I think get overlooked. They're verses eight and nine and are found right before the description of the Proverbs 31 woman. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Linda and Dawn could no longer speak for themselves and tell who had murdered them so viciously. The men who Colin had approached to cheat on that blood test didn't go to the police. It took the woman who overheard and just couldn't live with herself if she didn't speak up. That's a perfect example of a practical action step right there. If you happen to have any knowledge at all about a crime, please go to your local police and tell them what you know, even if you think that it isn't important. It might just be the one thing that they need to know to be able to crack that case. Any one of us can and should thank local law enforcement officers for the incredible job that they do every day to protect us. It will not cost you anything but a bit of your time. And if you do find a law enforcement officer to thank, please get a picture and post it with the hashtag Proverbs 31 Speak Up. And don't forget, Visit the show notes and you'll find all kinds of links to helpful resources and you can find a link to sign up for my email list. I would love to be able to connect with you. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.